This is the Coalition of Christ-Exalting Churches, a network of churches in Northern California that are working together to advance the gospel by strengthening one another and planting new churches. Go to coalitioncec.org to find out more information about how you can help. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jess again, and I'm introducing you to part three of our Biblical Reconciliation Workshop that Dr. Street, Dr. John Street led back in November. And uh, this is part three, focusing on forgiveness and humility. Have a listen. This is the particular session we want to talk about forgiveness. And I told you we were going to open up Pandora's box here a little bit. Three critical issues that we've covered here, and that is when you're dealing with conflict Reconciliation, the first thing you have to remember is uh, what's going on on the hard issues the people that are involved. The second thing is how do they understand repentance and do they really have a biblical understanding of repentance? And now the third thing is a really biblical view of forgiveness. Now, you've probably heard a lot of messages on forgiveness in the past. Maybe some of them have been good, maybe not so good. I don't know. But I do, I can say this that the Church of Jesus Christ has been heavily influenced by modern psychology today. And so we don't take what the Bible really says. There's a strange blending between what the Bible supposedly says about forgiveness and what modern psychology is saying about forgiveness. And to the degree that we take modern psychology and blend it into the Bible is to the degree that the Bible is diluted and the truth of the Bible is diluted. If we just let the Word of God speak for what it says... We'd be much better off as God's people and um, especially in resolving serious conflicts and finding reconciliation with serious conflicts. Um, Now, at some particular point, we don't have enough time to do this today, uh, but there's another element, and that has to do with the concept of humility. But we're going to at least deal with one of these two. In fact, if you take a look at the comments we make to you, two essential qualities are necessary for complete reconciliation and restored unity in a conflict. The attitude and the practice of Christ-like forgiveness and humility. When those two qualities are absent, there will never be true reconciliation, but only a truce. God desires more than a cessation of hostility. He wants his body to be perfectly united. This is possible no matter what the disagreement may be if there is a knowledge and desire to achieve Christ-likeness in all the parties involved. If there's going to be that kind of, if there is a knowledge and a desire to do that, then it's going to happen. So the question comes now is, and they're still working on this, is what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? And I think there in your notes, I have a comment that says, the primary Greek word translated to forgive is the word ephemi, which means to send away or to release, to send away, or to release. Let's see if we can get this caught up here. Oh, nope. We started at the first part, and we've got to go clear down to the third one. There we go. That's still the first part. Keep going. Bring her down. That's it. 
That's it, right there. There you go. There we go. Ha! Good deal. All right, now we're going to deal with the issue of forgiveness. Whoops. What happened here? I think the guys in the back want me to go back to the heart one. I think that's what they want me to do. They didn't quite get that, so we're going to have to go back and review. All right. Let's see here now. There we go. Look at that. What is forgiveness? Okay, good. So the primary word is the word of Fiamme. It means to send away to release. So in reference to sin, it means to pardon. That's key. Reference to sin, it means to pardon. But forgiveness has also been rightly described as a promise because when God forgives, he promises that he will never hold our sins against us. That's really critical for us to understand. In fact, I want you to grab your Bible and let's take a look at this from two different Old Testament perspectives. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and we're interested in verse 34. Jeremiah 31, 34. And here, Jeremiah is writing within the context of the future coming new covenant. And he says, at the end of verse 34, he says, speaking for the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, that's an unusual statement, especially when it uh, talks about the covenants because In the Mosaic Covenant, in the Abrahamic Covenant, there is no mention of this at all. It doesn't exist in the Mosaic Covenant, doesn't miss, uh, and it's not mentioned in the Abrahamic Covenant, in either one of them. But under the New Covenant, this is different. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, why is that so important? Because... um, Our forgiveness of one another is critically based upon the foundation of us having been forgiven. That's really critical. In other words, I'll postulate to you that it is impossible for an unregenerate man or woman to forgive anybody because they don't understand forgiveness. They don't don't understand forgiveness of sins, past, present, future. They don't have any concept of Christ's atoning work, it's impossible for an unregenerate man to practice genuine forgiveness. Only the Christian can do that because they know that they have been forgiven. So that's why we say the best definition of this is the promise of a pardon. Uh, Let's go over to Isaiah, back to Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, same context, just different prophet, where Isaiah is talking about the new covenant. And again, notice, speaking for the Lord, he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, twice... Here, in, both in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, he actively says, I will not remember your sins. Now, why is that so important? Because God does not forget our sins. 
He's omniscient. If God forgets our sins, then he's forgotten most of his Bible because most of the Bible is about his people's sins. All right? He does not forget our sins. Forgetting is a very passive thing. Now, like if you were to ask me 40 years ago when my wife and I were married, where we lived, I could probably describe it to you. Do I remember our phone number or uh, the street number? I would have a hard time unless somebody prompted me to be able to recall exactly where we lived or why, because I don't use that information anymore. I don't use it. Over the time, I forget it. I just don't use it. I don't have any ability to be able to recall that from my stored memory. Um, I don't have any hooks to be able to pull that up unless somebody gave me a hook in order to be able to do that. So over a period of time, I forget things. Now, God doesn't do that. God does not forget anything because God is not a creature of space and time. We are. We are created to be a creature of space and time. We, we think linearly. We think one thought after another thought after another thought in space and time. It was Einstein who said you have to have space in order for there to be time. And so that's why God created space and time. But God stands above space and time. There is no future to God. There's no past to God. There's just an eternal presence with God. Listen, God thinks all thoughts at the same time. All right? God thinks all thoughts at the same time. This is really critical. Um, He created space. He created time. We are creatures of space and time. We live in space and time. But he doesn't forget anything. The past is just as real to him as the future is. And he planned the future. Hebrews 1, 2. Through whom he created the world. That's the way a lot of our English translations Translated, but the word world there is not cosmos, it's ionos. It's really true through whom he created the ages. The ages. God created all the ages. He created the future, he created the past, he created the present. So he created all the ages. He doesn't forget anything. Everything is remembered with him. So when it, what does he mean when I will not remember your sins? This is not passive. This is an active Hebrew not remembering. All right? God actively does not remember our sins against us. That's critical. He doesn't forget. That's why the Bible does not teach forgive and forget. The Bible teaches forgive in order to forget. That's different. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. The Bible doesn't teach forgive and forget. The Bible teaches forgive in order to forget. God actively does not remember our sins against us any longer. Or as Corey Ten Boom used to say, God takes all of our sins, plants them in the deepest part of the sea, and puts up a new fishing sign. That's what God does. All right? He actively does not remember our sins against us any longer. Now, why do I go to all that extent to explain... Because the way in which we forgive one another is directly related to our understanding of the way in which we, we understand we've been forgiven. All right? That's, that's such, such a critical thing. So let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about God's forgiveness. There in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, you can see this. And uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 
Man needs forgiveness from God both before salvation and after salvation. The forgiveness needed before salvation is what theologians call judicial forgiveness. Why? Because our primary relationship to God is one of subject to judge. Prior to salvation, our primary relationship is subject to judge. So we need judicial forgiveness because God acts as our judge prior to salvation, declaring us righteous forever and delivering us from eternal condemnation. That's what Romans 4, 3 through 8 and Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says. The forgiveness needed after salvation is just as important. And it has been called by theologians parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness. Why? Because our primary relationship to God after salvation is that of child to father. Child to father. Because God is now, after salvation, our loving father who wants to free us from the temporal discomfort of his chastening, just like any good loving father will do with their children. So God is our father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, which talks about discipline. In fact, I'll be in Pastor Vlad's church tomorrow. We'll be talking about that very thing in Pastor Vlad's church tomorrow on Sunday worship. So, this is really key. Um, Now, this is important because that says a boatload about our forgiveness of one another. If biblically, um, forgiveness is the promise of a pardon, and it is, and God has does not actively remember our sins against us any longer, if that's the case, then we are to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. Now grab your Bible again. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4. You can see this in verse 32. Paul says this. This is why... Not only can we understand and practice forgiveness, but we ought to. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Notice that our forgiveness of one another is based upon the fact that we have been forgiven. And then go over to the sister book and and go over to the book of Colossians. And you can see this in Colossians as well. Colossians chapter um, 3 is what we're interested in. Verse 13, Paul says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. So, there... Again, both statements in Ephesians and Colossians, we have this forgiveness of one another predicated upon the fact that we have been forgiven an entire lifetime of sin. All our past sins, our present sins, all of our future sins are all forgiven in Christ, and we ought to have a charismatic revival about that. That's really significant. All of our sins. Now, 
Does that mean that we are sinless? No, we can still sin. But God does not kick us out of his family after we sin. He doesn't do that any more than you kick your kids out of your family. I know you feel like it sometime. When they do wrong, um, God does not kick us out of his family when we sin. We don't lose our salvation when we sin, but there is a disruption in the fellowship, the parental-child relationship, where God brings his temporal chastisement and discipline upon his children. This is important to understand. So, we have to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. So, when we grant forgiveness to someone, we are like God has already done. We saw that in Jeremiah 31, 34 and Isaiah 43, 25. We are promising that we will not actively remember their sins against us any longer. That's what we are promising. We are promising not to actively remember their sins against us any longer. That constitutes three basic things that are critical here. Number one, that means I am not going to remind you of the sin in the future unless it would be absolutely good for your good. In other words, I'm not going to throw this up in your face in the future. I'm not going to do that. Forgiven sin is only brought up to help another person, never to hurt them. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to be historical. I'm not going to keep records. I'm not going to hold on to this. And later on, when you do something that I dislike, then all of a sudden throw that in your face. No, I'm letting go of that sin. I'm not holding on to that sin any longer. I've released that sin completely. When I forgive, that's what I do. I, I am promising It is the promise of a pardon the way that God has promised to pardon us of our sins. It's a promise of a pardon out of the person. I'm not going to be historical on you and bring, not hysterical, but historical. All right. I'm not going to bring this up and throw this up in your face so as to hurt you in the future. That I promise not to do that. The second thing that's key here is I will not... um, Mention it to anyone else, unless it would be absolutely necessary for your good. I will not mention it. In other words, uh, exceptions is when a life or death situation or a wanted criminal is involved, or if a pedophile wants to uh, says they're repentant and wants to work in the church nursery. All right, that becomes that becomes exceptions to those things. Then we need to bring that particular issue up because that person definitely has a weakness in the flesh. But you're not holding that against them and you're not going to go around behind their back and talk about it to other people in the church. You're not going to do that. Or your friends, or your wife, or your husband, or whoever it may be. I'm not going to talk about it behind your back. I forgive you. This means that I'm no time in the future am I going to resurrect this and talk about it to other people. The third thing, and the third thing is probably the most difficult of the three, it says, I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. You can't promise to forget something completely. Only time is going to extinguish the memory. You can only promise not to bring it up. You can promise to not think and dwell on it, not keep records, is the idea. 
So I promise not to bring it up to you, not to bring it up to others, and not to bring it up to myself. I promise not to bring it up to myself. I'm not going to dwell on it in my own mind and become bitter and resentful and angry towards you. I, I am promising to forgive you. I am not going to hold on to this information and use it against you in the future. If my attitude noticeably changes in relationship to that person after I've forgiven them, then I'm probably violating this third thing that's supposed to be the promise to forgive. And that is, I will not bring it up to myself. We are commanded to forgive. The Bible is very clear about that. And you are sinning if you refuse to make that promise. Therefore, forgiveness is a matter of obedience rather than feeling. It's not, well, I, I've got to wait until I feel like forgiving that person before I forgive them. Millennials love that. They love that. Why, why do they do that? Millennials think feelings equal reality. All right? That's what they think. However I feel on the inside, that's what I am. If I'm a boy and I feel like I'm a girl on the inside, I must be a girl. If I'm a, guy, a girl and I feel like a boy on the inside, I must be a boy. It, it's all feeling oriented. It, it, feelings equal reality for them. All right? And they think, I mean, the overriding axiom of our age is, in this millennial generation, is I must be true to myself. All right? I must be true to myself. Now, I didn't grow up in that generation. I grew up in a post-World War II baby boomer generation, and our axiom that our generation lived by is do your duty. Do your duty. That was it. That's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to do my duty. That's it. That's not true anymore. Now the axiom is I must be true to myself. And a, a, a millennial Christian will say to you, but you know what? If I do this against my feelings, I'm a hypocrite. Really? Well, you know what? Let me ask you a question then. When my alarm rings at 4 or 4.30 in the morning and I've got to go catch a plane at LAX, I don't feel like getting out of bed. And I do anyhow. Am I a hypocrite? I don't feel like doing it. Am I a hypocrite? That's a, that's a total distortion of what a hypocrite is. All right? Your feelings are not you. Your feelings are a product of how you evaluate your life around you. But they're not you. All right? You are who God declares you to be. That's who you are. And you have to rest your mind down on that. You are who God declares you to be. A hypocrite is someone, according to the Bible, is someone who tries to be something on the outside that they know themselves genuinely not to be on the inside. That's what the Pharisees were, were and Jesus Christ uncovered their hypocriticalness. But that has nothing to do with, it may involve feelings, but that's not the core of being hypocrite. 
There's lots of it. Do you think Jesus felt like going to the cross? I don't think so. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine be done. Was he a hypocrite because he went against his feelings as a human being? No, nobody. Jesus wasn't masochistic. He wasn't looking forward to the pain. Oh boy, the pain of the cross, bring it on. Driving it. No, no, no. He wasn't masochistic. He didn't look forward to that, and yet he did it anyhow. Against human feelings. I know there was more involved in that. I mean, because he knew that there was going to be a separation between him and the Father, which occurred for the first time in all eternity because of our sin was laid upon him. I know all that is part of our, but I'm trying to illustrate what is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? So the idea here is that when I forgive somebody, I am not going to allow my mind to dwell on that thing. And this is a matter of obedience. It's not feelings. And it's a sin for you to break your promise after you've made it. You've got to keep your promise regardless of how you feel about that other person. This is what Psalm 15, 4, David says, such a person of integrity swears to his own hurt and does not change. They swear to their own hurt and they do not change. So when I forgive, I'm being like Jesus Christ because he forgave me an entire lifetime of sin. I'm not going to throw that up in their face. I'm not going to go around and talk about it behind their back. I'm not going to dwell on it in my own heart and mind, become bitter and resentful towards that other person. That's, I am promising to forgive them, and it involves these three key areas of that promise. Now, the next question we've got to ask, by the way, here are some examples of transactional forgiveness, and I'm going to explain the terminology a little bit later. Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35, the unforgiving slave repents of a huge debt and is forgiven, but refuses to forgive a fellow slave who also repents of a much lesser debt. Philemon, you've got the illustration. Now, note how Paul does not encourage Philemon, that is a slave owner, to forgive Onesimus from a distance, but sends him to Philemon so he can see his repentance and his salvation and therefore forgive him. Now, why is that so significant? Well, this is really key here. And I think this, there's a note that I put there in your, in your notes. It says, some passages in Scripture clearly imply that we can only forgive those who ask for it. That's Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. While others seem to imply that we should forgive everyone who sins against us, regardless of whether they ask for it or not, like Mark eleven twenty five. Now, how can we understand this apparent discrepancy? That's the question. Well, perhaps the best way to make a distinction, much the same way as we make a distinction between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness in theology, there's also a place to make a distinction between transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. A difference between transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness. Or you could call it the difference between reconciliation, because that's what happens in transactional forgiveness, and release, that's what happens in attitudinal forgiveness. 
in order to help you understand this, first, we've got to go to attitudinal forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness. What are we talking about there? Uh, the attitude of forgiveness is critical. Even though we may not be able to fully be reconciled with everyone who sins against us, our attitude towards them should never be one of anger, bitterness, resentment, or any kind of ill will. In fact, let me posit this. You read a lot of books on conflict resolution, and they almost make it seem that if you press all the right buttons and you do all the right things in resolving conflict, that every conflict will be resolved. Not true. The Bible is very clear about that. You're not going to be able to resolve every conflict. How do we know? Well, let's, there's numerous examples. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Look what 1 Corinthians 11 says here. Where in 1 Corinthians 11, you remember this is where we go when we celebrate the Lord's table. But before we get into verse 23, he says... Um, in verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I, and in part, I believe it. And then he says in verse 19, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, notice that. In verse 19, Paul is saying, sometimes divisions in churches are actually good. And no amount, no amount of conflict resolution is going to change that. Because there are some people that are just devoted to doing things or believing things that are just ungodly, and others who are not, and that's going to be a nat bring a natural division. And no matter what you do, you can't resolve that. And in implying here, Paul says, God purposed that so it becomes evident to everybody who is approved of God. That is, those who believe the right thing, acting the right way, living for Christ, they're the ones that are approved for God, the others are not. So not all conflict resolution ends up in reconciliation. It doesn't always happen. Well, what do you do? If you can't be reconciled to the other person, what do you do? Well, this is where the attitude of forgiveness comes in. You may not be able to be fully reconciled to them, but the Bible is very clear we should also treat them very kindly and graciously. Romans 12, 17 through 21. We're commanded to love everyone, Luke 6, 27 through 35. So we must desire their best, which means we'll do everything that we can to bring them to repentance, and we will always be ready, ready to reconcile. As Psalm 86 and verse 5 says about God. Grab your Bible, let's go back to Psalm 86 and verse 5. Now, if you have the ESV, you're not going to be able to see this because they brush over this in their translation a little bit. If you have the NASV, you probably can see this. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good 
and ready to forgive, the New American Standard translates it, and abundant and loving kindness in all who call upon you. Now, that's about as literal as you can translate that. All right? And notice how it says, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. All right? Now, gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on. Are you ready? Here we go. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach anywhere unconditional forgiveness. Doesn't teach that anywhere in the Bible. Not a shred of evidence anywhere in the Bible about unconditional forgiveness. You say, what? And yet I hear that taught all the time. There's not a shred of evidence. Everything that we're forgiven for has a requirement behind it. There's not going to be a single person in heaven who has not repented. All right? This is, this is really such a critical issue here. And it says here in Psalm 86, 5, that God is ready to forgive what? Abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon you. You take that little phrase, little Hebrew, Hebraism, that little Hebrew idiom, to all who call upon you. You trace it to the Old Testament. It is equivalent to repentance. Every time you see that phrase, it means to repent. To call upon the Lord meant to repent. To call upon the Lord meant to repent. To call upon the Lord meant to repent. God is ready to forgive all those who repent is the idea. So, this is what we call, in the very heart of God, the attitude of forgiveness. He's ready to forgive all those who repent. This loving attitude has been called forgiveness in the heart. It's been called vertical forgiveness because it is mentioned in the New Testament on an interpersonal level between people it is mentioned only within the context of prayer. All right? It's mentioned only within the context of prayer. It is something that we do before God that enables us to have a right attitude towards that individual. For example, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. There's Mark eleven twenty five. It says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Now, you study that within context. Jesus is talking about a man who's gone to temple to pray. Who's there? Just that man and God. The person who has sinned against them is not there. And he's saying, if you have anything against anyone in your heart before God, you are to forgive them. You say, wait a minute. That's unconditional forgiveness. No, it's not. Because your forgiveness is based upon the fact that you have been forgiven. That's a huge condition. That's huge. All right? You, you automatically will do this if you've been forgiven. If you have anything against anybody in your heart, you'll do this. Or what about this? Luke 23, 34. What about that? Jesus hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
Now listen, Jesus did not forgive the people who were crucifying him. That's not what it says. It says he prayed that they might be forgiven. That's the difference. Because the people who were crucifying him did not repent. All right? And by the way, his prayer was answered in Acts chapter 2 when there was massive repentance in Jerusalem. Jesus' prayer was always answered. Massive repentance on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Same things with Stephen in the book of Acts as he's being stoned to death. He doesn't say to the people who are stoning him, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. He doesn't say that. He prays that they might be forgiven. The implication is that they would repent and be forgiven. There's the idea. There is no unconditional repentance in any of those. When Jesus teaches the disciples' prayer, you can see the same thing. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. Luke eleven four, And forgive us our sins. This is talking to believers. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So based upon the fact that we have been forgiven all of our sins, we automatically are willing in our attitude and ready like God is in Psalm 86, 5, to forgive anyone who repents. That's the attitude that's set deep in the heart. So we can conclude from that, those verses and others, concerning love and graciousness, that anytime somebody wrongs you, you should be able to pray to God in this way. Father, you know what has happened between me and so-and-so. Help me not to be angry or bitter at them, nor to seek revenge in any way, but help me to love him and desire only his good. Please work in his heart and bring him to repentance so that we can have a reconciled relationship. Use me in any way you can to help him. That should be our prayer. That conditions the heart. I don't care what kind of sin it is. How horrible you may view that sin to be. For the believer, that may involve a confrontation, according to Matthew 18, with that person. For an unbeliever, it would involve witnessing to him, if possible. As Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So let me say this. Attitudinal forgiveness in our heart prepares our heart to respond the way God would respond, the way Christ would respond. All right? However, the Bible is also clear about the fact that we cannot forgive people who do not repent. All right? That's what we call transactional forgiveness. Just as God does not make his promise of pardon to people unless they repent, Luke 3, 3, Acts 2, 38, you cannot actually say, I forgive you to people unless they admit their sin and repent. Therefore, the transaction of forgiveness is conditioned in that you can only be fully reconciled to those who repent. Those who refuse to repent of their sin are not forgiven by God in a parental sense, as we mentioned before. And so the consequences of that broken relationship with the offended Christian continues. 
Grab your Bible. Let's go over to Luke 17, 3. Now, remember how I told you to put your seatbelt on, your crash helmet. You may want to add a flak vest. Now, okay? Let's add a flak vest to this. Because this is where it gets really hard. And Jesus understands that because look at the words he uses. In verse 3, Luke 17, 3, he says, be on your guard. (laughs) Now, when Jesus says, be on your guard, you better be on your guard. Okay? Be on your guard. This is tough. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, the word rebuke, that's used there is not the Greek term that means to bring a full indictment on a person. If your brother sins against you, you don't go over there and just fully indict him. You did this against me and you shouldn't have done this and this is a sin before God. And that's a full indictment. That's that's not what that means. If your brother sins, the word that's used there is tentatively rebuke him. Tentatively rebuke him. In other words, you basically say to your brother, listen, I believe that you sinned against me. Here's what I believe has happened, but I could be wrong. I maybe have misjudged the situation. I'm willing to hear your side of the story. If your brother sins, tentatively rebuke him. And you're willing to hear his side of the story. Okay? That's really such a critical thing. And it says, if he repents, there's the condition. If he repents, forgive him. What? Just like that? Yes. Just like that. What? Shouldn't I wait to see some fruit in his life? Nope. Nope. Jesus says, based upon his word. Well, you're kind of stretching that a little bit. Oh, really? Look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times a day. And returns to you seven times saying, I repent. Forgive him. I'll tell you, seven times in one day is not a lot of time to look for fruit. No time. You got to do it on the basis of his word. You're working next to a new Christian, new believer in Christ. He has a little bit of an anger problem. He gets really frustrated at work, turns around, boom, gives you a good sock on the kisser. And you go, whoa! And he goes, oh, that's a sin. That's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. You know, I'm working on this thing. You're going... (laughs) Okay, well, I I forgive you. You repent, I forgive you. About an hour later, gets really frustrated at work. (laughs) Boom! Whoa! And you're starting to get a little puffy here. All right. And you go, oh, forgive me. It was wrong. It was a sin. I'm still working on your sin. I want you to work a little bit faster (laughs) on this issue. And this happens seven times in a day. Seven times in one day. Jesus says, you forgive him on the basis of his word. That's it. And you're sitting there thinking, oh. God can't do that. You've got to be kidding me. Well, you're right in the place where the apostles were because look at verse 4 or verse 5. You can almost see the apostles throw their arms up in the air and say, Lord, increase our faith. 
All right, can't you see that? Ah, oh, what are you serious? Seven times in a day. And Jesus says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be a brooded and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Mustard seed was the smallest seed in the known world at that time. And he just took the smallest thing that was known. He says, it's not, it's not the amount of your faith that's the issue here. It's what your faith is based in that's the issue here. If you trust me and I'm your Lord and Master, then you need to follow me, period. Just do what I tell you to do. <sighs> really? Yeah. In other words, you're going to be able to do this if first and foremost the attitude of your heart is right. If the attitude of your heart is not right, you're not going to be able to do this. My wife counsels women once in a while. And every now and then, she'll have a woman say to her, Well, you know, I know I should forgive my husband, but you know, I'm just not ready right now. And her classic response every time that woman says that, she says to her, I want you to imagine just for a moment if God did that to you. You were repentant. You went to him and said, will you forgive me? And God says, well, I know I should. But I just can't right now. No, God doesn't do that to you. He never does that to you. No, no. He forgives you based upon your word. That's such a key thing. Hence, we're supposed to be able to do that with one another transactionally. We're supposed to forgive based upon their word. This is really key. If the Bible taught unconditional forgiveness, think about this, we could never practice church discipline in our churches. I don't care if Brother Joe over here is committing adultery in our congregation. We all just need to go over there and forgive him, whether he's repentant or not. We'd never say that. Well, I hope you would never say that. Now, there are some loose evangelical churches out there that would practice that kind of nonsense. But I would hope not because church discipline draws a strong line between the church and the world. And everybody's clear thinking when they understand that line's drawn. That's the way the world behaves, so we're going to treat Brother Joe like the world. This is the way the Christian behaves. We're going to treat Brother Joe, if he repents like a Christian, draws very clear lines in people's minds between the church and the world, church and the world, church and the world clear. If the Bible taught unconditional forgiveness, it would be a travesty that we would ever practice church discipline. If you forgive everyone without confronting them, then then you end up magnifying sin. You don't take sin seriously. Then there will, there will be no repentance And there will be no church discipline and there will be no church restoration either because the goal of all church discipline is not to remove a person, it's to restore them. As Paul said, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul might be saved. 1 Corinthians 5. Remember when I was a pastor, we we had a woman who divorced her husband we disciplined her, sent her a discipline letter, did everything we could to love that woman. And her attorney uh, called me into court, set me on the stand, 
And the main thing that he was upset about was the fact that in our letter, we had turned her over to Satan for the destruction of flesh that her soul might be saved. All right. He said, I want you to recant this. I said, I'm not going to recant that. That, that's what it, her attorney wanted me to do. I want you to recant. I'm not, it's clear in the Bible. Let me take you to the Bible. Let me show you why it's in there. Because God takes sin seriously. That's not going to happen. So he was just huffing and puffing and, you know, smoking all over the place. But I just let him smoke. Transactional forgiveness is based upon a person's forgiveness You can't forgive a person who has not genuinely repented or hasn't repented or hasn't said that they've repented. There's the key. You can't do that. Otherwise, you're not taking sin seriously. Now, this brings up several other issues, obviously. What are they? Well, for example, the first one is what about confronting versus covering? All right, grab your Bible. Go over to 1 Peter 4.8. Look at this for a moment. 1 Peter 4.8. Brother Jess, we started late, so I'm going late. 4.8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes you hear among Christians, well, you know, I've just covered that thing in love. And what that means is, usually, is I've I just basically tried to forget about it, act as if it didn't really happen, ignore that the sin took place. I've just covered it in love because that's exactly what the Bible says. I mean, there it is. Love covers a multitude of sins. The question, though, is, When the Bible talks about covering a sin, what does it mean? And again, we practice a dangerous form of semantic anachronism when we read 20th century meaning, 21st century meaning, into ancient biblical words. What does it mean? When you trace the idea of covering, remember I told you we'd go back to this verse. Let's go back to Psalm 32. And in Hebrew parallelism, you can see this. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? Covered. Covering is practicing biblical forgiveness. It's not ignoring it. It's not looking the other way. It's not acting like it never happened. Covering a sin is practicing biblical forgiveness. Go over to Psalm 85 in verse 2. Again, Hebrew parallelism helps us here. Here it says, a psalm of the sons of Korah, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin. So again, covering is not looking the other direction. It's not ignoring it. It's not acting like it never happened. Covering a sin has the idea of actually practicing biblical forgiveness. So when it says love covers a multitude of sin, love practices biblical forgiveness. That's what it means. Love practices biblical forgiveness. You say, well, okay, well, if that's true, what about Proverbs 10, 12? What about that? Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12 
says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. Again, you have to read into that that love is ignoring the issue rather than understanding that biblical love practices forgiveness. Why? Because hatred does the opposite. This is an antithetical parallelism. And the opposite is hatred stirs up trouble actively, but love actively covers, not passively ignores, actively covers a sin. How does it do that? Through forgiveness. That's how it does that. So what about that? What, here's another one. What about apologizing ask, rather than asking for forgiveness? I already said to you that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say we're supposed to apologize to one another. That means to throw up a defense for what we've done. No, that's when you back the dump truck of feelings up and just dump bad feelings on a person. No, we don't dump bad feelings on people. We acknowledge our sin and we ask the other person for forgiveness. Pastor John Kim, right here in front. All right, let's say that I sinned against him. And I went up to him and I said, Pastor John, I've sinned against you. I really apologize. I feel horrible about what I did. What's a guy's normal response to that? Uh, forget it. Uh, okay, uh, thanks. Um, all right, yeah. Or we may even say, well, okay, I forgive you even though he wasn't asking for it. All right, we may say that kind of thing. So that, all that does is that just lets him know I feel bad about it. The Bible's way is much more thorough where I have to go to him and I say, you know, I believe I've sinned against you, John. Will you forgive me? Now I throw the ball into his court. He's got the ball. He says, okay, do I want to forgive him? Am I willing to forgive him? And of course, if he has a heart that's ready to forgive, then he's going to say to me, yes, John, I forgive you. He throws the ball back. That's what seals that relationship. That's what starts the reconciliation process. It is that process, that exchange that occurs there that becomes critical in order to bring two people together that were not brought together. In fact, were divided because of that sin. Where saying you're sorry, apologizing doesn't do anything like that. This heals that relationship. Sometimes we act more like the world than the world acts like the world. Or what about this? What about forgiving God? Have you ever heard people say that? What about forgiving God? I have a boatload of Christian psychology books on my shelf. And you ought to read some of this stuff in it. I mean, you want to see me angry? It's when I start reading some of this stuff. There is a guy, this is Christian psychologist who writes in this book about this woman who came to him who had, uh, had children who were very short and her husband was short in stature. And she was all the, all upset over this. I have a short husband. All my kids are short. I don't understand. And eventually, after wrestling with this woman on this thing, the psychologist says to him, you know, your problem is you're never going to feel better until you forgive God. <laughs> never forgive him. What? Now, why would anybody who claimed to be a Christian say that kind of thing? Number one, God doesn't make any mistakes, Right? And sometimes I'll say to counselors, you know what? God has never made a mistake in all of eternity and you're not his first mistake. You're not his first mistake. But according to this, why, what is he? Because he wants the woman to feel good. 
It's a therapeutic thing. Well, why don't you forgive God? That'll make you feel, oh, yes. So, God, you must have really made a mistake here by having me have a short husband and short kids. All right? This is just a major mistake. No. Numbers 23, 19, God says that God is holy. He is immutable. He makes no mistakes. No mistakes. Or what about forgiving unbelievers? What about that? Well, you got to remember, in your heart, you need to forgive everyone. That's, that sets it attitudinally. But can we transactionally forgive an unbeliever? Remember, they are de- dead, disobedient, depraved, doomed. Instead of highlighting their sin against us in a disagreement with an unbeliever, we need to highlight their sin against God. We turn that occasion to an evangelistic opportunity. Let me share with you an example of this. Way back in 1990, while I was still pastoring in Ohio, I had a couple in our church come to me and ask to do premarital counseling. They, had, they were new to our church, and the, the, the woman, the gal, uh, parents had just started coming into our church. So I started premarital counseling with them. We had first appointment, um, premarital counseling, and always standard operating procedure on the first appointment. If I don't know a couple, I'll always give them the gospel, give them detailed things to work through in the Bible with the, about the gospel, that kind of thing. And between that week and the next, or that Monday and the next Monday, on Sunday I had preached all these services, and um, I went to bed that night, and usually as a pastor, some of you pastors know this, you're just exhausted at the end of Sunday. I get a phone call, and it's from her father. I said, Pastor, um, my daughter and fiancé were in a terrible car accident. Drunk driver went through a stop sign going 80 miles an hour, T-boned their car, sent it into a telephone pole. Will you meet me at the hospital? I said, absolutely. I jumped out of bed, threw my stuff on, meantime calling the elders, letting them know what's going on, run to the hospital, walk in the door. Just as I walk in the emergency room, doctor comes out from behind the curtain, and he's covered with blood. They're never supposed to come out from behind the curtain covered in blood, but he was. He said, you must be the pastor. I'm going, I didn't feel like a pastor at that time. But... I said, I am. He said, you got to tell them I did everything I can. I cracked her chest open, massaged her heart, everything. I could not keep her alive. But, oh, great. So I said a quick prayer and went in, sat down with the parents and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and everybody that's there and had to tell them that she was gone. A lot of tears shed. Um, her fiancé was taken to another hospital. His name was Rusty. And uh, the, the, the car hitting them was going so fast, he was, it hit on his side, but it jarred his body so much that it caused a, a micro um, leak in his aorta. And so he was bleeding to death on the inside. It was such a hard impact. I, we arrived at the hospital, and they're, they're taking Rusty in surgery and I'm running along the gurney talking about the gospel that we had talked about earlier in the counseling session and Rusty prayed and gave his life to Christ and I thought oh my goodness that was a deathbed commitment took him in the, the emergency surgery he survived 
Long story, Rusty later on married a girl who had lost her fiancé to a drunk driver, both Christians. They have a family, live in Texas. Great family serving the Lord there, so it's really great. But I had to deal with her parents, the girl's parents, for months after that. And her father was a big guy, really big guy. And he confessed to me in counseling how he was going to the court proceedings, listening to the court proceedings, and he was planning a way to grab a hold of the sheriff in the court, which is, was a little guy, and he probably could have done it, overcome him, grab his gun, and kill the guy who killed his daughter. I said, this is bad. Don't do this. So they, I worked with him in counseling for months and months. Um, and God really worked, brought actually his wife to Christ, her brother to Christ through all this. Her brother now is an elder in that church. It's crazy. But fast forward 10 years. 10 years, last month, I'm a pastor of the church. I get a call from her parents. Said, um, we want to ask if you'd be willing to go with us to sit down at the penitentiary and talk with the guy that killed our daughter. I said, are you sure you guys want to do this? This is not, no, 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 we want to do this. So they had learned a lot, their counseling, and we showed up at the penitentiary, and they stationed four of the biggest guards I've ever seen in that room. I mean, one each corner. This guy sat across, myself, her mom and dad, and I saw her father sit there and look at the guy in the eye and say, you know, there was a time where I wanted to kill you. Guards are like... <laughs> right. He says, that's, that's no longer true. In fact, what you did against me and my wife and our family is not nearly as great as your rebellion against God. And they gave him the gospel. And I look up and I look at these guards and these guards never heard anything like this before. And they, every single one of these guards had tears in their eyes. I had tears in my eyes. I was never a prou- prouder pastor in my entire life. And I heard her father say, you know, there's nothing better we would love to do than forgive you. But we can't offer you that because there's a bigger issue involved here and that is your rebellion against God. That's what needs to happen. That what, Whatever it is, I don't care how bad it is, the person who's sinned against you, I don't care what it is. It's their rebellion against God that's the big issue here. Or what about this? What about forgiving dead people? Well, if attitudinally in your heart you've forgiven them as the Lord has, this should not be a problem. We don't sit an empty chair in the middle of the room and yell and scream at that empty chair the way therapists tell us to do as if that dead person was there. That's too cro- close to necromacy, which is talking with the dead. We don't do that kind of thing. Nowhere in the Bible does that ever say to do that kind of thing. Attitudinally, this should be set in a... Or what about forgiving ourselves? What about that? I know that God can forgive me. I know other people can forgive me. I just can't forgive myself. Do you realize how prideful that statement is? Here's God's standard of forgiveness. Here's other people's standard of forgiveness. My standard of forgiveness is up here. All right. What does that really mean? 
um, what they mean is that they really are having a hard time giving, getting over what they've done. If they really looked at their own life and they did something stupid and sinful and ungodly, if they looked at their own life from a biblical perspective, they'd not be saying, I can't believe I did that. They wouldn't be saying that. They'd be saying, I can't believe I don't do that more often. If I understand my own sinfulness, my own ungodliness, my own stupidity, it'd be the opposite. Because now we're looking at it from a biblical point of view. Not from a self-love, self-esteem. My kids used to say selfish steam. Right? Point of view. No. Is it possible to be too forgiving? (laughs) Grab your Bible. Go over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we're interested in verse 20. The church of Thyatira. God says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. No, this is not Beth Moore, but... All right. Just throw that out there. <laughs> Boy, the groans. I love that one. No. Jezebel is a moniker. It's, uh, this, we don't know her real name, but somehow she had been labeled that. But if you take a look at the word tolerate. See that word tolerate? There's our Greek term, aphiomi. There's our Greek term, aphiomi. I have this against you, that you forgive the woman Jezebel. Tolerate's a good way to translate that. Is it possible to be too forgiving? Absolutely. In the sense that we're too tolerant of sin. Too tolerant of sin. Well, how should we forgive? Immediately, as Luke 17.3 says. Repeatedly, as Luke 17.4 says. And lavishly, according to 2 Corinthians 2, 5-8. through 8, Remember, that's talking about the brother in 1 Corinthians who was committing acts of indecency with his, with his uh, father's wife, which is his stepmother. He was committing sexual sins with his stepmother, and he was unrepentant. So, so as a result of that, Paul says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul, soul might be saved. Remove him from the protective graces of the church and expose him to the elements of the world. Well, apparently that worked. Because in 2 Corinthians 2, this guy repents. And he comes back and seeks the church forgiveness. And Paul there, if you look at the Greek terminology he uses there, he basically says to them, receive him back with rejoicing. And the terminology is there, receiving back with a party. All right, receive him back with a party. Welcome him back. Restoration has taken place. This person's been restored. That's why we forgive lavishly is the idea. When we're practicing true biblical forgiveness, when that's happening, then all of a sudden, we have real reconciled relationships. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the clarity of your word. 
We're thankful for how it cuts through the difficulties and the mire and muck of sin that's a part of our lives and in our churches and helps us to proceed forward clearly. Help these men as they seek to be of help. First, they need to model this truth in their own lives. And then secondly, they can be of help to multiple people in their own church. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Coalition of Christ Exalting Churches. For more information about upcoming workshops or how to support us, go to coalitioncec.org.